You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have yet another awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Anya Jones, who is a researcher of childhood diseases. Welcome to the show, Dr. Anya. Thank you very much. I think we're going to have a very interesting chat today, hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? So hopefully easy indeed. So I'm, my job title is a computational biologist, which has actually already two words combined here. So you have biology and computer science. So that's bioinformatics. So might sound a bit complicated here, but actually if we take it apart, what I do is, so I have knowledge or expertise in biology or medical sciences, and I then use that knowledge along with bioinformatics. So using a computer to analyze large data in different childhood diseases. So working as well with different teams, looking at, for example, allergy, asthma, and childhood cancer. So you're one of the unicorns that people on the show are like, what we need is not just scientists, but also people who can analyze the big data and make sense of these kajillion kilobyte that we have floating around that we don't quite know how to deal with. That's exactly it. Yeah, I guess I've never described myself as a unicorn before, but in that sense it is. And then we actually find it's really hard to find people with this type of expertise because what usually happens is, or back in the day, you would have, those would be separate jobs. So you'd have a biologist or medical uh, scientist who do the lab component, so do the experiments, and then you have someone else who is a mathematician or a biostatistician and they don't speak the same language. So the trick here really is to speak both languages, to be able to combine them and make sense of um, complex systems. And then I guess take the next step and communicate it to people. But just to sort of touch on, you mentioned three pretty big ones there, allergies, which, I mean, we all know someone with an allergy, asthma, we're all going to know someone with asthma, and cancer, we all probably know someone with cancer, maybe not a child, but Are you able to talk a little bit about some of them or some of the research that you're doing? Yes. So let's take um, allergy and asthma. So they're actually linked. Um, We find that many children who have allergies also go on developing asthma. And then we know that actually, actually Australia has been dubbed the allergy capital of the world. So our allergy rates are really high. Not good. (laughs) No, I'm feeling a little embarrassed right now. Even you might have even heard of things like thunderstorm asthma before, which was a couple of years ago in Melbourne as well. And that, again, has to do with allergies as well. And uh, what happens is that, yeah, many, many Australians have allergies and there's currently no cure. So we have drugs or treatments you can take to alleviate the symptoms, but we currently don't understand enough about it that we could prevent it from happening or to be able to cure allergies. And yeah, anyone who has, for example, hay fever, you'll know it's very annoying. Hay fever season comes and you'll have a snuffy nose, runny eyes, and it's uncomfortable. This may sound silly, but it had never crossed my mind there could be a cure for allergies. I was just like, this is something the human race is going to have to deal with forever. That is exactly it. We just, I mean, I actually have hay fever as well, and I just deal with it by taking some allergy medication. 
But having said that, there is a treatment you can take depending on how severe your allergies are. So that one's actually called allergen immunotherapy, which is also known as allergy shots. But really only the most patients who have very severe symptoms will undergo this treatment because it's a long term. You need to do it for many years and it's invasive. So you need to get allergy shots, literally injections once a month. And uh, yeah, who's keen on that many injections? Yeah, no, that doesn't sound fun, but I, I assume it's all like in comparison to the actual severity of the allergy, that would seem like a, you'd have to be pretty severe. It's like the idea of having a cure for the common cold. It's just sort of like this mythical dream that medicine cook up one day. Absolutely. And I mean, in a way, looking at how things are going with COVID right now, maybe in the future, that is actually a possibility for the common cold and for other diseases. I mean, in recently in the news, they've also been talking about using the current technology, the mRNA technology that's used for COVID, also for HIV and other diseases. So new technological advances, it might actually make it possible. That'd be so cool. So when we're talking about allergies. What work do you do in that space? So as a computational biologist, usually that means I'm not in the lab, uh, usually. So I sit a lot at my computer and I analyze data either my own from my own projects or from collaborators or other team members large amounts of data and we're trying to figure out what's going on. So for example, we have collaborations with clinicians and we're getting samples from patients that have received treatment for their allergies. And we can then compare before the treatment and after the treatment, what's happening in the immune system, what has changed and how can we make things better. Right. And to, for you to be involved, I'm imagining there must be a huge amount of data collected? Like I'm guessing we're not talking about 10 people have undergone a trial. So it really depends. Sometimes some trials are smaller, some are much larger. So they're clinical trials and different locations and different clinics that people get um, recruited. And then when we're talking about large data, yeah, we're talking about uh, terabytes of data. And Like in a previous episode, Dr. Jessica Buck also mentioned, yes, it's not something I'm going to download onto my computer, but we have so-called supercomputers, so they're very powerful, and we need those to be able to analyze the data. Right. So you're computational. You're obviously sitting at a computer, but you're using computers that are elsewhere. Are we using supercomputers? Yes, In a sense. So it's like having different modules or if you take many computers and attach them that they can all work together like a massive super brain in that sense. And I can just from my computer, I can log in and work remotely in that sense and do the big data calculations on the supercomputer and then well, so-called simpler tasks back on my laptop. What programs are you using or what languages do you use to do this work, just from sort of like the techie, nerdy detail side? Yes, so it's definitely, there's a number of different 
programming languages, the one I use mainly is called R. So it's a couple of little letter R, which is very well known. But then other parts are done in a Linux environment. So in a terminal, also command language, you need programming language, but it's another language. There's things like Python. So there's a number of different languages you could use. And it also de- it depends on what your questions are, what type of data are you actually analyzing. Yeah. So your speciality is in R. Mainly R, yes. Cool. Do you take data, I don't know how to say it, like all the way through the pipeline? So from the beginning and cleaning it and tidying it, and then do you then produce graphs and things that people can consume? Like which part of the data and analysis spectrum are you part of? Yes. So thanks. So that is actually an excellent question. So in my case, I actually do all of it. But sometimes I might come in at a certain point in time as well onto the project. So I do start from start to finish. A big chunk of the data processing I do is is actual processing. So it's like 80% of the time might be just getting the data into manipulating it in a way that you can work with it. And then 20% or so is asking this versus that. How does the treatment pre-treatment versus post-treatment, how do the groups compare? And then also making yeah, pretty graphs or visualizations so people can understand what you're talking about for publications in science journals or maybe for talking to the um, public as well in a, in a seminar and conveying the message, I guess what you call science communication. We might need to explain to listeners why data would ever need to be cleaned and manipulated. I think we tend to assume that data comes in, you sort of fill in a Google form, there's all your standard fields, you fill it in, it's all nice and neat. Like what could possibly need to be done to it to be analysed? Thanks. That's a brilliant question and uh, a problem problem I have all the time when I I might be talking with another team and say, look, I need to know, for example, I have 100 patient samples. That's the code or that's the sample ID. I need to match it to that sample ID. Is that a pre or post treatment sample? What other information do I have that I need to match up with that sample? And it might be as simple as leaving a space in the sample ID. So R doesn't like that. And leaving a space or any of the um, extra characters, like having a percentage in there or an at symbol, any of those, if I put it into R, it's not going to like it. It's going to put a full stop or something else. Dates as well. Dates need to be all formatted in the same format or else it's going to be messy. And those are the type of things which I need to pre-process to have them in the way that I can even start working with it. Having empty cells might be a problem, like when you have an Excel spreadsheet. So I need to just make sure the columns or rows are done the same way. It sounds like you need a huge amount of attention to detail. Yes. And sometimes you miss things as well, which means you might go a long way in your pipeline or your analysis pipeline, and then you go back and redo something because you realize something's not quite right. That would be crushing, especially if you have had something running for a couple of hours or, oh, and then it trips over a comma. 
it literally does. So sometimes that's actually the best part, especially when new people start in R and bioinformatics and something's not working. And often it's just literally a spelling mistake. There's a full stop missing or a bracket that's still open and you need a closing bracket. It's sometimes very simple things like that. And then the code doesn't work. Yeah, I think anyone who does anything with computers is uh, can feel the pain right now. They're very literal things. You mentioned earlier, though, that there's a sort of specific focus on like childhood diseases. Are you able to talk a little bit to that? So the skill set I have can be applied to different diseases. So it's actually the technologies we use to analyze data can be used in allergy, asthma, or cancer, or any number of other diseases, because the type of technologies we use in the lab are similar or even the same. It's just the question that is being asked by the researcher is a different question. Are you able to walk us through what an average day at work might look like for you? So an average day at work at the moment is no longer average, I'd say, thanks to the pandemic. So there's actually a lot of working from home now or remotely, and it's very mixed. An average day will really be very mixed. So some of the boring admin things like answering emails, I guess. And part of it might be that I'm running through a pipeline, running some quality control in R of my data. I might be preparing a presentation, writing up some results, having some meetings with other team members, a lot of different things. Sounds like there is a lot of sitting at a computer though. Yes. So what makes that a bit better in that sense is, I guess, if you have a table that goes up and down and you can do some standing and sitting. So you're literally not sitting the entire day at your desk. I think that's a really important life hack, especially for the computer focused jobs. Of all of those parts of your day and of the data pipeline, like what part is your favorite? New technologies and actually, I guess, starting new projects as well, because it's a Pandora's box. You have no idea yet what you're going to find. And it's only when you start looking at the data that you even find out sometimes, is it any good? Are there problems with it? Because you might think you're starting out with something good. It's not. Or it's even better because you make an amazing discovery. And this is, discoveries are really fun, finding out new things that no one knows about yet. And that's what you want to tell everyone about in the paper you're writing and presentations at conferences. So the exciting discovery bit, which I guess you would be at the very cutting edge of, of seeing when the computer you know, produces a graph or something and you're like, oh, that's actually showing me something new. Yes. So for example, you might have, oh, look, the allergy treatment is working. And then asking the question, which particular cell type is making the difference? Because there's many different cell types in our immune system that might be contributing to the allergy. What about what can go wrong with data? Like, can you give us an example of something that's turned up in a data set that you're like, wow, that's not going to make my life easy? Yeah, so something that happens actually quite commonly, and there's only scientists or data scientists only really know about it for the last, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years or so, is what so-called batch effects. 
So when we do a experiment in the lab, you want to be doing that ideally all in one go, but sometimes that's not possible. Let's say you have 100 samples, you can't process them all in one day. But then if you do them over several days, you might have slight variation being introduced by working over so many days. You might have different team members contributing. They work slightly differently. So those are things they might show up in the data and we then need to do something about it because what we want to measure is the actual treatment effect. So how is the allergy treatment? What is it doing? And we don't want to be measuring there's two different scientists working in the lab and working slightly differently. That's really insidious. That's only going to really start to show up once you have those big data sets and you can compare. That's sneaky. And it's also a problem, actually, because you might want to combine different data sets from different institutes where they're studying maybe the same disease, have used the same technology, but there will be differences just based on where it's done. But moving forward, newer technologies will be able to deal with it better, but it's always something to keep in mind. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And obviously, as I guess the public, we kind of like to think of scientists as being these amazing perfectionists who don't get things wrong or do things even slightly differently. And it's a bit sort of scary to think that, you know, the humans making small human errors. Exactly. Absolutely. I guess that's what you're for, is to remove the human errors. As best as we can with the technology available at the time, yes. Able to give us an example of one of the new technologies that's come up at some point that you've been quite excited about? Yes. So the technology I've been super excited about is that it's called single cell RNA sequencing, which is a mouth load or mouthful. And what it does compared to older technology, which is just called RNA sequencing, is that we can now, instead of looking at a mixed cell population. So for example, if you take a blood sample, there's different immune cells in there. And with the older technology, we would measure which genes are switched on or off in allergy. So it's like measuring or you could compare it to a smoothie. It's all blended up. We're getting an average idea of what's happening versus with the new technology, we are asking this question, which genes are switched on or off in each individual cell so we're going, getting a much finer resolution and it's super exciting. Well, obviously it sounds cool, but it also sounds like something you really need to know about to get excited about. Absolutely. It's many people we find, for example, at our institute are now getting into this newer technology and using it. And I'm expecting yeah, a lot of new discoveries to come out of that because the older technologies, it's like it's hidden in the data, but we can't access it. And with the new technologies, we can access it. It sort of feels like we're constantly finding new keys that allow us to unlock different bits of knowledge. It's very cool. It is exactly like that. And the more questions we answer, the more questions we have as well, because there's so many things we don't know yet. Which is exciting. There's, I imagine there's also days where it's quite frustrating though. Especially when you've got hay fever and like your eyes are running and everything's itchy. They'd be the frustrating days. How have you ended up in this role? Because it really sounds like you need to have two really strong skill sets that are, are quite different and don't tend to hang out together that often. So what was your path, say, from high school to where you are now? 
Yes, so not a straight pathway, anything but that, because back in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think that's the case for many high school students. They don't quite know yet what they want to do. And you don't know yet what what's even possible, what jobs are out there, because you haven't tried them yet. So I started with a undergrad degree in biology with Spanish, because I liked science and I like languages. So I thought, okay, put the two together and like that. But then I also always had an interest in forensic science. So I did a master's in forensic science because I always found it fascinating and enjoyed that, but then found, oh, well, actually there's maybe not that many. What are the exact jobs in forensic science? Do I want to be a lecturer? Am I going to work with the police? And then went back to a more biomedical direction when I started in a cell biology team or lab looking at allergies and asthma and viral infections. And when I started in that lab, also by chance, because I applied to many different teams and they, they said, yep, we'll hire you, we'll give you, we'll give you a shot. My supervisor at the time, he was the computational biologist, so I saw him running all these lines of code, which if you imagine, it looks a bit like the, you know, the movie, The Matrix, where you have all this, these lines of code. So it's a bit like that, not quite, but a bit. And I thought that was cool. And I saw an opportunity at the time. So it was about 10 years ago. So I had a, the biology background. I was working in the lab at the time. And I thought I need to learn this because we're going to need this more. And we do now 100% need data scientists who can do this type of work. So how did you learn like the level of, I guess, statistics and computational skills that you need? So trial and error. At the time, there weren't actually many other people who were doing this type of data analysis in R. So it was a lot of, I'd say, sweat and tears went into it just to learn it. Whilst now there's a lot, there's much more of a community who you can ask other people for help and working, having a project that you can work on, that you can practice on as well, I guess, like anything, like practicing, it's practicing a language really. So if you take Spanish, the more you talk it, you get the opportunity to talk it, you will get better at it. And the same happens in programming language as well, that initially nothing works and you have no idea what you're doing and you try a bit here and there and things start working, you get more excited about it and you learn more about it as well. It is, it's hard, but if you've got your own project, it's a lot easier to keep going as well because then you're curious about your own answer too. Did you ever get to use the Spanish? Yes. So I actually used my Spanish. I went, I actually did an Erasmus year, which in Europe is a year abroad, where as part of the university degree, you go a year abroad. And I did a research project in cancer research, actually, at the time. And the skills I learned there were also part of why I was hired in the lab back here then. So they were also transferable. And I still use my Spanish every day. That's fantastic. It's lovely to hear that just your interest in like studying Spanish has then like fed through and opened up opportunities. That's so you're allowed to follow things you're interested in and study them at uni. It's allowed. It might be useful. You don't actually know. 
yeah, you can combine sometimes things that you wouldn't even dream about. Another thing is also, I mean, actually, I was really interested in art and thought, oh, that could be an opportunity as well. But now I can combine my art in with the science and try and make the best visualizations using applying the art. And there is so much potential in scientific visualization at the moment. It's one of the places to be. It's cool. Within your path to getting here, like obviously there was the the moment of seeing your supervisor and seeing your screen and, you know, there's code that's running well and isn't covered in red, Is does look cool and is intriguing. Were there any other moments that were like really key that helped you in this path or like that pivoted you? Yes, I think so. So definitely some teachers back in high school who believed in me, math teacher and biology teacher, because I thought I couldn't do it and they thought I could and supported me. And then I actually participated in the National Youth Science Forum, which was during the summer before year 12. And I went to the, because I was in Europe, I went to the London International Youth Science Forum. And going to that was amazing. So that really helped with the decision making of, yes, I definitely want to study science. I don't know what in science, but it has to be science because it was just great to go to different lectures, different so on different topics, go to some labs, see some universities and talk to other people who were interested in science as well. And that is just an amazing opportunity for students to go to. I think for a lot of us who got to go to those events, it was also that first feeling of like you're part of a community and you're not alone get to hang out with your fellow nerds exactly is there any advice that you would give to a young person who is considering a career let's say in computational biology any advice you'd give to them get onto it as soon as possible I guess I would think if I could have learnt those skills already years back I wonder where I'd be right now although maybe I wouldn't like it anymore you never know but the earlier you can start with a language the better and to just give it a go so if you're interested in it also maybe just write to a scientist and because I think that's scientists would love to hear from students who are interested and to um, give them a chance to either come and try do a summer internship some volunteering there's many opportunities but you just yeah if you're a bit scared you need to just jump over your own shadow and just give it a go and there are a huge number of free resources to get you started and large data sets a lot of scientific data is available for free you may need to process it yourself but it's still available for free Absolutely. So there's a lot of data out there and a lot of tutorials. So it's in a way they're nearly taking you by the hand and talking you through it. So you can try, they give you an example data set and you can work through that and then learning by doing. Yep. And finding that question, I think that you're interested in finding the answer to, because that will then help you get past that moment where you get the big red page of errors and all the stray commas and things. I still get those sometimes, but now I've learned to better understand the error codes that I know what to do about it. That's the real skill of programming. It's not like being able to program without errors. It's understanding and deciphering what the computer's trying to tell you. (laughs) Ah, they're finicky things. Are there any myths or misconceptions like that the general public have that you'd like to take this opportunity to some myth busting, like either about computers and 
data analysis or about allergies or anything? I think one I really like and have to laugh about all the time is just an example with my supervisor who might, during my PhD, will come in your, you think you're done with your analysis and will come in and ask, have you looked at this yet? And the supervisor thinks it's just, you just press one button and voila, it magically appears. And that's not the case. You go back to your analysis. You might be running it for a week or so. Then you go back to your supervisor, show your supervisor the results. It's not interesting. And we ditch it and get on with it. So it's not just, you don't just press a button. And the other thing is, yeah, the lack of funding for medical research, which also was touched upon by a previous person as well, that everyone thinks there's so much funding for medical research, but it's actually the opposite. It's been going down. And we talk about a brain drain. So people, scientists leaving Australia to go somewhere else because there isn't enough funding and uh, we need to do something about it. They are two very big myths. I would like to reiterate, obviously, that the brain drain is definitely a problem. Don't know how we can solve it right now, like obviously at a podcast level, but it is important as for listeners to be aware that there isn't this giant pot of money that the medical research community are just like diving into every day. It's a little bit tighter than that. And yes, code. Yeah, you can't just like add something and press enter. And even with our amazing computers we have now, things still take a lot of time. Is there anything else we haven't touched upon that you'd like to share today? Yes. So there's actually something really exciting I'm about to embark on, which some people might have heard of already, which is called the Homeward Bound Leadership Program. And uh, I applied for that last year thinking, well, I might not even have a chance, but I did get in. I was selected. Firstly, congratulations. Thank you very much. So I'm a participant of one in 109 women in this year's round, and it's the seventh year. So it's a larger movement of females only and in STEM. So in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine. And the idea is to lead and influence decision-making as it shapes our planet. So they want to provide leadership skills to women on a global scale and reach 10,000 women in total. And it comes in two parts. So the first part is a virtual component. You do the leadership component. And then the second part, you go to Antarctica. So super exciting. Although COVID permitting, I hope it happens. We'll have to see if you can actually travel again by when the time comes. But it's a super exciting opportunity. And I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for sharing and massive congratulations because it's not easy to get into any of these kinds of programs and that's going to be awesome. Do you know anyone else who's going? So actually just today they've shared the list of every one of the other women who are going as well, but at this stage I only have a list. I know there's a couple of people who are local. There's a lot of Australians and some people or some other women from overseas as well. So it is at a, at a global level. And uh, we do want to actually see if we can get together for at least the local people to um, have a face-to-face meeting, again, COVID permitting. That would be exciting. 
Although, like, arriving at a dock and then getting on a boat with a whole lot of people you don't know, that's exciting as well. I guess it is because we, we will have met, by that point, we will have met virtually many times, learned together, talked about things, but actually being there then in person and seeing someone face-to-face and spending three weeks on a boat in Antarctica. Have you been on a boat before? Yes, but probably smaller boats, not that big. (laughs) There's some pretty wild oceans between here and Antarctica, but actually, where do you depart from? So we actually depart from what they call the end of the world, which is in Ushuaia, which is the most southern tip in Argentina, also known as the Tierra del Fuego, land of fire. And that's where, in general, people can go on Antarctica trips from that point. I hope you're planning on sharing regular updates with everyone about your trip. Absolutely. I definitely want to share regular uh, updates for myself as well, just so, so I get a bit of a feeling of what have I learned, where am I at? Because it is, it is a journey, not just the journey on the boat, but the journey throughout. And so I definitely want to be sharing that with everyone. Which part of it are you looking forward to the most? At this stage, actually, the whole idea of having this community of amazing women that I get to network with. And I think there's, there's going to be a lot of things that I'm not even aware of yet that we might be able to do because a big component of this as well, it is about climate change as well. And the things we might be able to do, having all different women working in different areas as well, there's a lot of opportunities that we can jump on. All right, yeah. You'll get to network with all sorts of different like women who have technical skills and all sorts of different experiences, and I'm excited for you. It's going to be a, a great adventure. Thanks. I'm very hopeful it'll, it'll be like one of the youth science forums where you sort of get together and it, you feel like you belong and you've you found a group of people who you can just kind of like click with and be yourself with. I think so. And then also it really depends on how much you make out of it. So the more you put into it and the more you spend time and connect, the more you will get out of it as well. And it won't just stop in a year's time, but it will lead on into the years to come. And you get to go to Antarctica. Hopefully. Absolutely. That'll be a highlight of the um, program. Yeah. Well, we we will watch this space with lots of excitement and hope for you because you've got a really adventurous year and a bit coming up. Have you got for us just to wrap up now, have you got a high five, a virtual shout out that you would like to give to someone or someone who you think are just doing an awesome job and deserve lots of high fives? So yes, I do. And it's actually to you because last year I was very, I guess, what would you call it, muted on the whole science communication, and I kind of had a light bulb moment and thought, okay, let's give this a go. I usually don't post original posts myself on Twitter or anywhere else. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try this and see if people eat me or not. They didn't. It was a very positive response. And your prompts from the SciComm September really helped to kick that off and get started. And I'm doing a lot more now. So thank you. Oh, did you hear that, listeners? You have to give me a high five. (laughs) 
Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. And honestly, I'm very much looking forward to this year. I'm going to be slightly more organized and I think I've already got some of the prompts worked out. So for those of you who are listening and aren't aware, last year I came up with the interesting idea to put put out prompts to encourage people to share their science communication, the stories of their science. And Dr. Anya was one of the many wonderful participants in that. And hopefully SciComm September will now be an annual, well, it will be if I just keep doing it, it will be an annual thing where people get prompts and it mostly goes off on Twitter. So definitely check out Twitter again. Thank you. That was so sweet. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, with that, I'm going to say thank you so much, Dr. Anya, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Obviously, high five to all of the people who are analyzing the huge amounts of data we've got right now. You're doing incredibly important work and it is deeply appreciated by all of us. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, You can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.